Good morning. Good to see you. Hey, you made it on the cold day. I knew you'd, I knew you'd be here because being here together is, uh, is important. So thank you for coming, braving the cold. And if we were to end right now, it would have been worth coming, huh? Uh, the worship team led in some beautiful worship songs that we were able to join in. Hey, we're in week four of five on this Keeping Spiritually Fit series. Take the time and trouble to keep yourselves spiritually fit. One version of the Bible translate Paul writing to Timothy. In week one, we talked about who we worship determines how we worship, right? Who we worship determines how we worship. If you were worshiping a bowl of soup, you'd worship a little differently than you're worshiping Almighty God. And then week two, we talked about God's word daily is optimal for spiritual health. Daily, God's word coming into us. I mean, we eat every day, we breathe every day, we sleep every day. Most days we shower. So God's word daily is actually very doable. And then in week three, Jesus taught us how to pray, not necessarily what to pray, but how, with reverence when he said, hallowed be your name, with surrender when he said, your will be done on earth. He said to pray with contentment, give me my daily bread and with alignment, God is, as will forgive others as you forgive our sins. And then with dependence when he said to deliver me from evil. And this morning, we're doing the cardio workout. This is, this is the cardio part of spiritual fitness, and that is service. That is serving others. Serving others is the cardio. And without cardio, things, don't, things are not optimal with your physical health. Without a cardio workout, uh, they're just not optimal. And without service, our spiritual life is not optimal. It's just, you know, it's, it's okay. But until we actually serve others and we become less and we elevate others, then our spiritual life isn't gonna be optimal. So the key truth for this morning is that our drive to serve others is deeply rooted in the nature of God. Our drive to serve others, where does it come from? It's rooted in the nature of God, the essence of God, his being. We know the triune God, right? The triunity, the trinity, that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we say Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But let's think about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how there's an equality in the fact that there's just, there's just one God, there's one God, God who is Father, God who is Son, and God who is Holy Spirit. And if we really wanna be like Jesus, then we understand that the, the Trinity, they serve one another. Jesus said, not my will be done, but your will be done when he was in the garden. When, it, when Jesus underwent the temptations in the wilderness, afterwards, the Father sent angels to minister to him and to strengthen him. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, hey, hey, if, if, the, if it's by the power of the Spirit that this young man has been healed, then the kingdom of God has come upon us. The Holy Spirit was ministering to the Son as he empowered him to serve. And so we see that, we see that Jesus returns to heaven and he says, I'm gonna send 
the comforter. And then he says, the comforter whom the Father will send in my name. It says that Jesus sends the comforter. It says that, that the Father sends the comforter. So you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? The comforter. The, they all serve each other. The nature of God is this loving community, not just of relationship, but let's go one step further, but of service, of service. Who God is, is he someone who serves himself. The Father serves the Son, and the Son serves the Spirit, and the Spirit serves the Father, and the Spirit serves the Son. And the Son serves the Father, and the Son serves the Spirit. There's this this essence, this nature of God that is service. Um, In the book, uh, Kingdom Collaborators, my friend who, whose book I only copied, and because I'm in front of all of you, I can't remember his name, I remembered it in the first service. He wrote this, he wrote this about uh, growing through service. He said, people development cultures understand that people, don't, Reggie McNeil, Reggie McNeil said, people development cultures understand that people don't just grow into serving, but they grow through serving. They grow through serving. So this past week, Mitch has done Monday through Friday, getting to work at 5 a.m. every morning in Link in um, Wayne, Nebraska, where he lives. My wife and I weren't stressed at all about having him, him having to be to work at 5 a.m. I mean, we never thought of it one weeknight this past week, only maybe like every weeknight. Is he getting to bed? Is he going to get to work? You know, all this stuff, the baby of the family syndrome, right? But as he's been serving the needs of the college in a custodial position, that's serving he has been growing, he has been learning. He's been learning what people need. He's been growing in his skills and his ability and hopefully in his heart of service to others. We grow through serving. In his book, Letters to the Church, Francis Chan writes this, how would you respond if Jesus took off your shoes right now and began to wash your feet? Try to envision this. He writes, I wouldn't be able to hold it together. I picture myself crying uncontrollably. I think I would feel so unworthy and uncomfortable, but also secure and honored. I can barely imagine standing in the same room as Jesus. My mind doesn't have a compartment that fits the thought of my creator and judge washing my feet. It feels impossible. And then he writes this, at the core of our faith lies this belief that Almighty God humbled himself to serve us and die for us. At the root of our calling is a command to imitate him by serving one another. And and that's the, the key thought here this morning, is that our drive to serve, it's rooted. By the way, I, I found that after I already came up with the word rooted. Great minds think alike. It's rooted in the very nature of God. This book by uh, Christian Buckley and Ryan Dobson called Humanitarian Jesus, Social Justice and the Cross. So there's, there's, some, there's some different stuff in here, right? But they interview different people. And they, they interview somebody from this organization. I thought it was really interesting. You've heard me talk about my cousin who passed away recently, and she worked for this organization that sent hundreds of millions of dollars every year to 
worthy and needy places around the globe. And she told me, and again, not a believer, but she said to me, you know, with all the organizations that I work with around the world, in all of these third world countries, in these, uh, some of these African countries that are dominated by corrupt leaders, she said the best organization I partner with, the absolute best, is Samaritan's Purse. She said they are second to none when it comes to helping people in crisis. So one of the people in this book is one of the leaders of Samaritan Purse, and, and they, they say this. They say, I believe that the focus on providing human needs has diminished the message we are supposed to carry as good Samaritans. The parable that Jesus told about the good Samaritan is certainly at the core of the work we do here at Samaritan's Purse. Our purpose in responding to crises around the world is not to help the government provide housing and soup kitchens for refugees. Our purpose is to work with people through the storms that beset them to earn the right to proclaim the love of Jesus Christ. That is what compels us to meet the needs of others and to do it unashamedly. It's interesting that the best way to share the gospel is actually to act in alignment with the nature of God who is the one who serves and that when believers join together, the best time to get the gospel message to a group of people is when they've just gone through this terrible situation and they're, they're, they're beset with a crisis and you come in and you meet the needs present in their lives because of the crisis, but you do it for an ulterior motive. And that is not to get something from them, but to give something to them, to share the gospel. I thought, how interesting that when we act in alignment with the nature of God, that is actually one of the best opportunities to share the gospel with somebody. So it's not just, uh, it's not just throwing tracks out of a plane window, although that's been known. Actually, somebody picks it up and God uses it and they're led to Christ. But the best way, I mean, I thought to myself, what if my neighbor decided she was too afraid to care about the kid next door? What in the world would my life be like today? What if the person who led you to Jesus was too afraid of what you might think of them? They just decided, ah, I'm uncomfortable. I'm not gonna do it. Where would your life be today? So when, when we see somebody in need, isn't that the time to serve, to serve, to image the heart of God and to serve? So we're going to look at this morning Romans chapter 12, and in thinking about Romans 12, you've got Romans 1 through 8, if you're familiar at all with Romans, the explanation of what the gospel is, what salvation actually is, and then Romans 9, 10, and 11 is the understanding of the gospel in light of God's covenant people and his relationship with them and kind of how that works out. Then you get to Romans 12. And somebody wrote this, he said, Paul, the writer of Romans, Paul regarded those whom he addressed not merely as individuals, but also as a household, God's household, and therefore unavoidably bound to each other, even if they disagreed with or disliked each other. 
For Paul, proclaiming and hearing the gospel led directly to forming communities in Christ, communities of the new kingdom, which had begun with the Messiah's victory. Jesus' victory on the cross and in the resurrection began to form these communities of faith. Therefore, he says, the important question, the important question for Paul about behavior was not does this square well with your conscience, but does this serve to build up your brothers and sisters in the community? And you read through Paul's writings and over and over and over, behavior is to glorify God and to build up the people around, around us. Does it serve to build up your brothers and sisters in the community? Because that's what God has gifted us to do. So with, with that as a backdrop, with the nature of God as the understanding of the root of all of our drive to serve, the reason why it feels good when you serve, the reason why when, when you provide a need for somebody else, why it feels good, because it's in concert with God and with God's heart. God feels good when he serves himself. I mean, it's, feel good is like an understatement. The character and nature of God is to serve. It's just baked right in, it's built right in. And when we reflect that part of God's image, it brings us great satisfaction and great worth. Romans chapter 12, verses one through 10, it says this, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, we, though many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. There's a progression through this passage that involves a response to mercy, and then a surrender, and then a transformation, and then and a, and a, we acquire humility, then we become a unified and interdependent people who serve one another in love. So 
let's look more closely at the teaching that progresses through this passage. If you have the, the notes page, if you happen to pick it up when you came in, there's seven things there, and we're gonna go through them quickly. Number one, the basis of our commitment to Christ is the mercy of God. He says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Some theologians have said, hey, you should read Romans backwards. It would make way more sense backwards. You read chapters 12 through 16, and then you read chapters nine through 11, and then you start with chapter eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Because often, Paul always writes, he gives the truth first, and then in the second half of his letters, he says, this is how you should live in light of the truth. And some theologians say, hey, but if you read Romans, and you read what you're supposed to do, you get how you're supposed to live and what you're supposed to do, and as you go backwards, you see, oh, this is why I'm supposed to do it, why I'm supposed to do it until you get to the beginning of the book. You kind of start the end from the beginning. There's some movies like that, right? They go backwards. And it's really interesting when you think about the whole letter of Romans, the basis of our Christian commitment, he says in chapter 12, as he begins chapter 12, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in light of that, hey, God was merciful to you. This is the response, chapters 12 through 16. This is how you should live. This is why you should treat one another. This is why you should think about each other. This is why you should accept one another as I have accepted you and all the way through those beautiful, wonderful chapters. Second thing on your notes page, our commitment to Jesus, it involves the totality of our being. It says in the last part of verse one, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And the idea here. We, we understand the Old Testament sacrifices, right? We understand the, the goats and the bulls and the sheep and the living sacrifices that are put on the altar and slaughtered. And then they're dead sacrifices, right? By the time they become a sacrifice, they're no longer breathing. So we, we get the juxtaposition there of a living sacrifice, but, but what this is getting to, in view of God's mercy, and you look at chapters one through 11, what do you have there? You have spiritual life. You have the definition and the explanation of spiritual life in those passages. And then you get to chapter 12, in view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that God has quickened you, has made you alive spiritually, that you're a spiritually alive person, present your spiritual life to God as a sacrifice. So you've got somebody who is dead in their sins. They're probably not going to do much for God, although God right uses everybody, but they, from their vantage point, aren't serving God very well. Before we became believers, before we became followers of Jesus, we weren't serving God very well. But then once, once God like transforms us as beings, as created ones, and we become new creations, the only response is to take that new creation that we have and say, God, here, I'm giving myself to you. I want you to use me. I'm alive now. I'm spiritually alive. I have the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the knowledge of God, the truth of his word, and I offer myself to you. I, I, I surrender myself to you as this spiritually alive now sacrifice. 
let me serve you. Do with me as you will. So you'll get up tomorrow morning and you'll be kind of tired. And if you move snow this weekend, you might be a little bit sore. And it's going to be Monday in February. Woohoo! And you're going to think, oh, I don't have much. You're a spiritually alive person who's been gifted by God. And there's a whole world of people that we have the opportunity to serve. So I'm not expecting when you get up to spring out of bed, but allow as you wake up, allow the truth of who you are and the fact that you have surrendered yourself to God and offered yourself to to him, allow that to be a reality in your week this week. So God, who am I gonna serve in light of and in view of the mercy of God? And it's the totality of our being, our, our physical space and our spiritual life as well. Number three, our commitment to Jesus is fueled by a transformed mind. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. A few weeks ago, we talked about the one color elephant and the other color elephant swimming down the river. And we talked about how you can't just get rid of something as easily as you can replace it with something else. And a transformed mind is looking at all of creation, at learning from one another, looking at the experiences God gives in our lives, the Holy Spirit, and then the the most direct form of revelation from God, his word, and understanding his word, and learning and growing, and saying, I used to think this way, but now I think this way, because my mind has been transformed. I'm different now. My wife and I, we watch our kids, and we watch them parenting their kids, and sometimes we'll say to ourselves, oh, we used to think that way, <laughs> but we've, we've grown up, and our minds have been transformed through experiences and through truth and through teaching of others and through uh, examples, and now we think a different way. I used to think this way about the people I work with and my, my relatives and the people around me that are giving me a problem and coming against me. But I've been, my, mind's, my thinking's been transformed. It's literally been a renewing of my mind. Now I think differently about those people. I wanna pray for them and I wanna love them because that's what Jesus teaches me to do. And I, I wanna be a transformed person. So whenever we learn something, and our, th- and our belief is transformed, that transformation is never complete until we take that learning and put it into action and actually experience it and put it to the test and prove it and say, God's word is true. God's truth is true. It works in my life. It actually works. So this renewed mind, this transformed mind, God's word transforms predominantly, primarily, foundationally. But don't ever discount all the other ways that God will transform our mind too that all spring out of God's word, the Holy Spirit, all of creation as we see what God has done, other believers, the Holy Spirit speaking through other believers as well. Number four, the result of God's merciful transforming is that, why Eureka, we do his will. We do his will. Then, he says then, then after you've received the mercy of God and you've offered yourself to God as a sacrifice and your mind has been transformed, then you'll be able to test and approve things, 
to figure out what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and perfect will. Sometimes God's will doesn't look that fun, right? It's ahead of us, we know what we should do, and we're like, "Mm, I don't really wanna do that. But God's will is good and perfect and pleasing. And Paul goes out of his way to add those adjectives. God's will, then we'll be able Because of God's merciful transforming of us, we're able to do his will. Number five, transformation produces humility. Humility. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather with sober judgment. Humility. I mean, you read through the Proverbs and through the Psalms, pride comes before the fall, right? Pride, we all know, the sin of Lucifer. Pride, I want to be like God. Pride. Pride is always going to stand in the way. And isn't it interesting that one of the number one things that's talked about over and over, and it comes when we're like Jesus. It's funny how when we're being like Jesus, we're humble. And that humility is a prerequisite for true service. Humility to say, hey, um, you are more important than I am. You come before me. I want to serve you before I serve myself. Transformation produces humility. When when we love, we think about the other. And the opposite of that is thinking about me. I don't have time to think about other people. I'll never forget an experience that my son Doug and I had, just a dumb little thing, but we we went up to a Lakers game in Minneapolis, and we stayed at the place where the Lakers stayed. And I was making some of Doug's dreams come true, and so uh, we stayed at the same uh, motel, hotel. And it was right across the street from the Target Center. And uh, we were there, and we got to see the players and the different people. And we were getting on an elevator one time, and I, th- I think his name is Bill McDonald. I'm not sure. I think his last name is McDonald. He was the TV uh, announcer who would call the game for the Lakers. And if you were in Los Angeles listening to Los Angeles Station, it would be McDonald's voice, and there was another guy with them. But these two guys were the announcers for the Lakers. And we got up to the, and the, the, the door open, and he happened to be standing there. And we like kind of stepped back and we went like this. And with his tie and his nice pressed shirt, I'll never forget it, he goes, I insist. I mean, with all the energy and vim and verve in the world, I insist. And so to this day, Doug and I will joke about that. If I'm doing something, he's like, oh, Dad, you know, I insist. I, I insist to put you ahead of me. And that has just became this this larger-than-life illustration for me of humility and loving other people. And now, I don't even know know if the guy's a believer or not. I have no idea. But he was representing representing what Jesus says is so important to put other people above yourselves, to put other people first, this humility. Number six, the body of Christ is made up of many unified, interdependent people believers who need one another. There in verses four and five, it says, for just as, uh, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Unified, but not independent, interdependent. We need one another interdependent. So it's actually, it's actually a praise the Lord moment when we would say to one another, hey, 
I need you. I need what you offer. I need the gifts that you have. Hey, could you help me? Could you help me? I joked with Steve Harden, we were in a men's group this week and he was on the screen. Um, he was on the screen uh, zooming in. And he mentioned that he has a backup pickup. And I wasn't sure if that was his second older pickup or if it was a pickup that only ran in reverse. His backup pickup, I'm not sure. But I told him, I said, Steve, since you now have spoken and said that you have a backup pickup, now we would all like your, your cell phone number and your address so that when one of us needs a pickup, we know, well, you got a backup pickup, so I, can, I wouldn't feel bad about borrowing that. He said sometimes it starts and sometimes it doesn't. But we need each other. We do need each other. And we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be uh, apologetic. We shouldn't feel weak. The culture would make us feel weak when we have needs. But the scriptures teach us that we need each other. And it's all in this context of serving, serving. If I need you, you serve me. If you need me, I serve you. Service, it's at the heart of who God is. And then number seven, we are gifted to serve and we serve empowered by love. And again, at the end of this section, uh, verses six through uh, eight, that talk about if you have this gift, then use it. If you have that gift, then use it cheerfully. If you have this gift, then use it diligently. But then he says this. He says, love must be sincere. You ever question your motives? Anybody in leadership, whether you own a business, you're the head of a department, you're the head of your family, you're, you're in charge over some nonprofit organization or a group, if you ever stand in front of people or teach or speak or lead a call, we're always checking our motives, aren't we? Like, why, why did I just say that? Am I trying to make myself look good? Or am I really committed to the good of the other person? Am I really loving the other person the way Jesus would love? Without pride, putting them before me, committed to serve? He says love must be sincere. A sincerity of heart. He says hate what's evil. Pride is evil. One of the many things. Cling to what's good. Humility is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Man, you guys, could there be any stronger of a statement that speaks to how we should live together? And not just us in this room, but all of us in Newton and Jasper County who name the name of Jesus. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. I insist, I insist, let me get the door for you. The heart of God and the heart of service, it's, it's just so, it's so critical. So our drive to serve others is deeply rooted in the nature of God and serving others helps to keep us spiritually fit. So now let me give you two somewhat random ways that you could serve. There's just a few of you this might apply to and then everybody else, you're gonna have to find your own way. But here's, here's a thought. I called the Salvation Army this week and I said, are there really people in our community who are going hungry? 
I know there's, I hear on the news, there's food insecurity and there's kids that are a certain percentage of this many kids out of this many are going to bed hungry in America. And I'm thinking, when I drive to the church, do I pass homes where people are going, where kids are going to bed hungry? So I called the Salvation Army. They said, you know what? The guy said, I don't really think so. Not in our area. In some parts of Iowa, that's true. But not in our area because we're only, compared to 12 months ago, we're only giving out 50% of the food boxes to families that call and say they need food and then they come and get it. Only 50%. So there's been an increase in, in provision from the government and from the state and, uh, and we're just not seeing. A bit. I said, well, what do you need? What do you, because they've got the, the, the major food pantry in town. What do you need? He says, well, you know what? We're, there actually is something. That we need two things. Two things. Number one is we need, we need the large cans of soup. Not the, not the little cans of Campbell's soup. And not the big institutional cans, but the chunky soup size cans. Right? The larger size cans, the 20-something ounce or whatever it is. We need that because when we have families, I, I like to give them a bigger can of soup and not those little ones. So, well, what's the second thing? He said those boxed potatoes in flakes that you mix with water and milk and you make mashed potatoes. Boxed potatoes in larger cans of soup we're always running out of. I said, well, I'm going to tell our people and I'm going to ask them to get those two things and to drop them off at the Salvation Army. And I, I didn't tell him this, but when you go, just say, you don't have to, but hey, I'm from Community Heights. We heard you needed these. And just drop them off. A way to serve, you're not going to get any glory out of it. You're not going to get any, right? Your reward is in heaven. So when you go to the store, the larger cans of soup and the potato boxes, take them to the Salvation Army. And then the second thing is, there's a, a young lady named Jamie Levins. Only Levins, I don't think, is her name anymore. Because she got married. Jamie grew up in this area, grew up, I think, in Newton. And several years ago, she came to the church, and I, I kind of got acquainted with her, got to know her a little bit. She was going to go and serve with YWAM. And I encouraged her to. And some of us in the church have been supporting her. And then our church, our missions, through our small missions budget, we've carved out a part of it, and we've supported her over the last year. Well, now at the end of the year, so I feel a little bit responsible for this, but she goes off and she goes to Uganda, and she went to um, Cambodia and uh, another place, and, she, and at one of those places she met a young man from Uganda, and now they're married. And now they're married. They just got married in the last month or so. And he's finishing his, his uh, uh, upper-level education, and they want to serve together through YWAM, and she's doing what she can now in the little town in Uganda where she is, and she's still with YWAM, and so we're still supporting her. She needs another $100 a month, $100 a month. Her name is Jamie, with an E at the end. Figure that out. Jamie, and she's serving in Uganda. She's from Newton. And us as a church have really encouraged her and supported her as she's gone out. And now she's really gone. Her husband's name is Emmanuel. And I don't know how the rest of the names work out because there's a different system for names over there. But that's where she is. And she's serving. And she's essentially one of us. So if you would like to give, you could just put Uganda on your giving or you could put Jamie on your giving because, again, I don't, don't, know, don't know what her last name is. Um, and we'll make sure that she gets it. Finally, if you've been following the Alliance's 40 days of prayer, they've been praying in the, in the past week 
We've been praying for marginalized people, people that are on the margins, people that are on the margins. And Jesus represented the heart of God when he walked the planet because he was always going to the people on the margins. Honestly, the people that I'm uncomfortable around, that I have to push myself toward. And maybe you're that way too. But Jesus was always going toward them. And last week, the Alliance put out a video by one of the people that works at the national office. And they talked about praying for marginalized people. So I want you to watch this. It's only a minute long, and then I'll close in prayer. I'm drawn to people who are like me, people I'm comfortable with, people who share my interests and understand my world. These are the people that I naturally choose to spend time with. Many years ago, A.B. Simpson started this movement we now call the Christian Missionary Alliance because he was called to people who were not like him, those who were on the margins of our culture, the unseen, the overlooked, the unaccounted for. He wasn't drawn to these to the margins because he was naturally full of compassion. No, he was drawn to the immigrant, the poor, the outcast, because this is the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 4.18, Jesus announced, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. This week, may the Holy Spirit give us the heart of our Father and the passion of his Son for those in our community who are on the margins. May we see the unseen and act with the love, justice, and mercy of Jesus. So would you pray with me? God, may we see the people on the margins and act with the love and the justice and the mercy of Jesus. Holy Spirit, show us opportunities to use the gifts you've given to us to serve you and the needs of others. In Jesus' name, amen.